Sorry, let's start. Um, where was I? Sorry, where was I? Was Anne, help me out. What was I doing? Reason. Huh? Reason. I know where. You were connecting our faith to reason. To get a healthier sense. Yeah, get a healthier sense. Oh, just ask somebody in the Catholic Church today to give a defense of our faith. Oh, here's where I was going. Here's where I was going. Did Christ ever say... I mean, he did. Actually, he doesn't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be stepping on myself here. Did Christ ever just say, believe in me and that's it? Actually, he does. But he also said, he also said, no, I mean, I can't take that away. Christ says that. I mean, you've got to take that seriously. But he also said, pick up your cross. Those who don't. Repeatedly says, somebody who does not do this, I will have no part of him. That is, there are all sorts of conditions. The, the fine print of that, if, if you will, believe in me and you know so we have this rich tradition that goes back thousands of years that have that are the um, that's the fruit of how many wise men and women who have um, explored the depths of the human soul and revealed truths about it over 2,000 years and we're going to cut that off when it's offered to us as a part of our faith. So the whole point of doing this was to go to Scripture. That's where we're going. So even if it's going to take a while to get there, that's where we're going. I want to do Matthew and John and Revelation because I hope it'll blow you away the way it did me. But, but that's where we're going. So we're taking a break. Okay, we're finishing up Fidia Ratio. We'll do Regensburg um, next week and maybe the week after. And then we'll do... Um, Abolition of man and orthodoxy. But this is just by way of saying, if you look at Christ's life, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot reduce what he did to saying, just believe in me. He's educating his disciples. He's arguing with the scribes and Pharisees constantly. He's constantly calling his disciples to task, saying, do I have to do this again? <laughs> like a teacher to an unruly or a... Um, a natural 12-year-old or, you know, however our children are. Um, he's calling his disciples to task. He takes them aside to explain things about the parables, you know. He's constantly saying in John, I am, I am, I am, I am. There's a lot to him that he reveals through the use of reason. Otherwise, how could he communicate it to other people? If he wasn't speaking to them in a language they understood, in a natural capacity of reason, how would they have, how would they have begun to understand him? Is that clear? I mean, he's not, I know, I know, he's not saying, you know, um, believe in me and that's it, you'll be saved. There's such a richness to what he do, does to reveal the kingdom, um, to, sh to help everybody understand just how great the gift is, what he's doing, and this is where I'm going to start today, when I really start, um, um, to, reveal, to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom through his powers of reason. Because otherwise, who would understand him? The way into our faith, let me put it differently, who, what, what uneducated peasant woman or man could enter our faith 
if they didn't know how to use language, if they couldn't understand a simple statement, they couldn't read the Bible, they couldn't understand anything being said to them. I hope this is clear. They could not do anything if they didn't have basics in reason. They wouldn't know how to frame a sentence. They wouldn't know how to understand. How would they, how would they understand somebody saying, follow Christ? It would make no sense if the powers of reason weren't at work to hear that and understand it. So reason is basic to everything we do. How well are we doing with it? So the whole thrust of this first part is to not take that for granted. That our, our church, our church, has these, this extraordinary tradition that represents the fullness of Christ in both his humanity, his powers of reason, and his divinity. Not one or the other. Reason is not canceled out of him. There's no way to look at Christ in terms of a Protestant belief that says nature is corrupt. We cannot trust it. Christ entered our nature, took it on. So there's no way to enter fully into our faith without entering fully into our humanity, including reason, and his divinity. So if there's any meaning to the work we're doing, it's to bring those two things together in, the, in their fullness, because that's what's been offered us. And I, I'm not going to lose a chance here. And that means there's a far greater responsibility on us to get this where it doesn't exist, to take it where people are not aware of this. It does not mean we have a greater wealth and we're to sit on it. It means we have a task. And part of it is to draw on all of our powers, all of our resources of reason to bring our faith to the world. That was good. Now we can go home. <laughs> I hadn't expected to say that, but, but that's what we're all about. Heather, sorry. Sorry, what did you... misinterpreting what he's doing or um, reading something completely false to what he's doing and then he lets it stand. Yeah. Like that is always something that I'm like, how you know how do we so how do we reconcile that with the Christ who yeah. does explain and does elaborate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hold on just a sec. Melody, did you hear that? Can you hear? Okay. Can I ask the two of you to do something? Can you, would you mind moving to this table so you're closer? I'm trying to do everything I can to keep this connection alive. Um, and I know it's awkward, but um, um, Heather, I'm gonna, I'm gonna probably shorten this more than I should. No, it's a really good question. Let me ask you a question in, in turn just to make sure of my answer. What I've got on my mind when I hear your question is the end of Christ's life. It's in the trial. He has nothing to say. Um, it's a travesty. He knows it. We know it. Um, they're taking God to task. They're accusing him for things he didn't do. It's like Socrates, except it's not a man, now it's God. 
which makes it infinitely worse. The travesty is, there will never be a travesty to approach that one. He's, um, it's God. And he doesn't speak. So I can answer that one. I'm having trouble remembering other instances when he's silent. So if you've got something else in your mind, where, what was it? Not where he's silent, but where he doesn't. So when he, he, so when he'll like explain to himself separate to the apostles, but the other people, he just says, you know, let he who has ears to hear hear. Yeah. So and and we know yeah. that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and stuff are in the back of that crowd, and they are they're trying to listen for something to. You're already answering your yeah. question. You already. Yeah. No, you so, are. Okay, so how? <laughs> no, here. I'm sorry, because I. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this briefly, and then I'm gonna go on. Um, I want to get this started because. No. No. Some of your questions are too deep, and <laughs> and I've got this work to cover. What can I say? It's a here. I'm going to try to do the best I can right now. One is, and I think it's important to think about this for all of us. It certainly, is, this is something I've thought about, and I I don't know where I am at the church on this. I may be. I hope I'm not heretical here, I, and I may be out on a limb, but let me go there. Um, one of my reasons for understanding or one of the one of the things I come away from the end with when he's silent is it's all been done there's nothing more to say so when Herod betrays him and when Pilate gives him up and he came for that finally he, he knew he knew that the ultimate reason for coming was to answer an injustice ours that we committed against God so everything in him wants to bring justice to the world. You know that I've been underlining that from the very beginning because I think in our world we split it. We make love like it's something apart. He's answering an injustice. So there's nothing that he does at the end that isn't um, um, with a mind to achieving a justice. That's in accord with everything his father did because the whole thrust of the Old Testament is justice, justice, the just man, the just man, justice. That's his father and the laws to Moses, okay? So it's justice. Um, that's why he came. So he's got he's to answer that in a way that um, recovers a justice, but in a divine love that humans can't offer on their own. That's something from God. And he does it in a way that calls us to do the same thing, that we, we are being asked to give up our lives in love in our efforts to be just, to pull those two things together. There's nothing to say. He's already done it. So at the end, um, I, I think, because otherwise he'd be touchy or defensive or he's not there for that. He's, he's there finally to sacrifice himself. There's nothing to say. So my understanding is, as I look at him, I don't know if this is going to answer your question, but he's never silent, ever, ever, until the end. Because at that point, there's nothing else to do. And his last words are on the cross were, forgive them. But I look at that as an ultimate thing, because very often, Christ is not saying, forgive them, forgive them. He's saying, to the fire, in jail, you know, I'm casting you away. Um, it's not until the end that that he offers that when there's nothing else to do. That's my answer. But in the, in the interim, in the scenes that you're 
it seems to me you're suggesting, and I can only think of one right now, and if you don't mind, I'd like to leave it there because I want to get to this. Um, when he calls the disciples aside and he, um, the disciples are saying, what do these parables mean? What are you saying? Um, and he says, he who has ears and, you know, he makes pretty clear at that point that when, he's, when he says some things have to be kept for somebody and it seems so unchristian, it seems so unchristlike, that it's like he's excluding somebody. And he is. He's saying, I don't want these people to know this. And that's deliberate. That's Christ. So I'm not, I'm not bringing anything. This is Christ saying um, to the disciples, I've got to teach you these things. He calls them aside and he explains what he's doing. But he says um, that he, he, he deliberately does not give this to some people. And it seems mysterious. I'm going to offer you my reading again. Well, I'm maybe getting into real trouble here. Mary doesn't need any help in getting at me tonight. Um, I think I'm doing a good job. I think what he's saying is um, casting pearls. He knows that if he gives the deepest wisdom to some people, even in his circle, you know, those close, we've seen it in the church again and again and again, that when you take the deepest truths from Christ, some people will use that for evil ends, and the evil will be in increased because they're using the greatest good given to them. So I don't see that as a silence, like I see the silence at the end. I see that as um, his wisdom and his awareness of evil, that you have to be careful because you know that some people are going to take the wisdom of God and they're going to use it for their own purposes, and we know that. That's inside the church, that's outside the church. And I hope you'll let it go there. Part of me wants to swear right now at some of these people. What do you do? My wife is saying, stop, stop. I hope you know I'm kidding, that I'm always grateful. It's, it's that this part of me that's too scrupulous, it's a sin, that wants to get to this work. But also, the, the questions you guys ask are so often really good, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to ignore them, but I hope, you'll let, I hope you'll let it go at that. Let's start, okay? Um, any, any prayers tonight? I'd like to try to keep them brief. Anne, yeah. Uh, for my dear friend, Brenda, who... Say her name. Brenda. Brenda. Who died a couple of days ago. Oh. Of ALS. Uh, and for comfort for her husband, Alton. Alton? It's like Elton. Elton. With an a. Alton. Uh -huh. Brenda. Yeah. Good to see you again, Ann. Glad you're back. May you remind her their son, unfortunately, is suicide about five days ago. He was 32, depression, alcohol. He just couldn't. Yep. Yep. His name is Vincent. Vincent. I don't have a pen. If just, um, let's start, okay? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How good you are. Um, I, I, I myself almost cannot express the joy of being together in this group. That people care enough um, to take the time to do this. Um, 
we're not just becoming smart. We're not just learning things in our heads. Hopefully, um, we're carrying these things to the deepest recesses in our hearts. There's no real knowledge that doesn't carry our hearts with them. It's in our hearts that we love. So let all that we're learning deepen our hearts. Fill them with your fullness. Um, give us the strength to take you to the world, to, um, to bring you. That takes a lot of doing because I think for the most, most of us, we feel inadequate or sometimes feel inadequate. Um, Moses did. <laughs> Good prophets did um, often. But you still told them to get out, go out. Even if you don't feel up to it, go out. Let it be so for us. With Let our pride get out of the way. Help us to take you to the world and most especially in our marriages, in our families. That's where um, the crosses go deeper, the risks are greater. Um, but um, I'm offering a special thanksgiving on my part and hopefully for all of us that um, we are grateful um, for all um, that these men have given us, the, the people who have brought us here, Homer and Virgil and Shakespeare. But now um, Pope um, John Paul and Benedict, um, they are standing with you, um, urging us to take care of a problem that's peculiar to our age. Help us to take it seriously. Let it help us in our call to evangelize, to take you to the world. Um, offer a special prayer um, for Brenda. Receive her into your kingdom. Wash away her sins. Let her husband Alton take comfort. So often these, these sorrows we feel bring us to a point of trial. They're reminders of how much we hold on to the world, sometimes too much. Um, let Alton let go of his wife. Um, let it be an occasion for his growing in faith. Wash away her sins. Um, if there's a time in purgatory, let our prayers help. But let her know the joy of being with you. I can't even imagine it. To look on your face, to look on the face of the Father, to look on the face of the Holy Spirit, can any joy approach those? Let her know that joy and find it radiating in everybody she's reunited with. We ask a special um, prayer for Vincent. Um, it's a dark age. Um, it's an age that's turned from you and it leaves so many people alone and isolated. Um, forgive that young man his sin, please. We all carry them. There are sins, the despair, all of our sins, the sins that surround us are ours. Let our trust in you go to him. Um, um, wash away his sins, forgive him, let him come into your presence and let all of those who love him, who will feel a, a grievous sorrow, um, find, be increased in their hope by this loss. I ask for a special prayer for Connie, for her medical struggles. She's not going to ask for them. I will. Um, and for um, the prayers that all of us hold in our hearts that um, 
We're speaking in silence, so. Say that. And David and Kay's daughter. Um, there was a great spark of hope for a time, and um, things have turned. Be with her. Um, um, support the efforts of those people to find a cure. But for me, most especially, be with Kay and David, the two of them. Let their hearts be at peace. They have prayed pretty deeply. Um, let them take a greater hope, find a greater gladness in this sorrow. That's our faith. Um, help us all to realize it, particularly in the face of our weaknesses for all of us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you all take out the Blake poem? I think what I'm going to do is um, go through some of Blake's poems for the next couple of weeks. By the way, just a reminder, I keep, every time I see Mike, I'm, I'm, he calls me back to, I think you all know I live in a cave. <laughs> There's, well, he calls me back to reality. I keep remembering his offering to make this dinner that I keep hoping we'll taste it. Sometime in this work, I think before we get to scripture, when we finish the apologist, Fini Ratio Ratzenberg, um, um, Abolition of Man and Orthodoxy. When we finish that work, we'll take a break. And I hope we'll have a dinner night and a movie night. And we'll be able to taste some of this, some of this fare. It was a great evening a couple of years ago when we had that meal together. I um, still think about that movie. We, oh, yeah? It's a Yeah. I feel the same way. We gave it, yeah, I gave it to a friend who's been staying with us. That was the first movie I went to to give it to him. Um, I'm going to read from Blake for the next few weeks just to stay with somebody. Remember, Blake was a 18th century, early 19th century poet, very Protestant, very visionary, and very tough-minded. He, he took as his inspiration Milton because Milton stood out against an establishment world um, with his all his good and all of his faults. That's where Milton was. I'm going to read some of his poems, and I just, I'm going to leave it with a brief comment because I want to, I really want to get to this work um, that we're doing. So, William Blake. Blake wrote a large collection of poems, um, and, um, they were divided into sections or books. The, the poem that I'm going to read tonight is from his introduction. There were songs of experience and songs of, um, songs of innocence and songs of experience. The songs of innocence were just that. They were songs written in a spirit of innocence. The songs of experience are darker. They were responses to the innocence um, of a lighter soul. I'm just going to go through some of them. Tonight I want to read just the first one just to get us going and then we'll stay with him for a few weeks. William Blake, um, 
piping down um, the valley's wild. Pay attention, because this seems really simple. It is. All of Blake's poems are simple on the surface, but pay attention, okay? Piping down the valley's wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again. So I piped. He wept to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe. Sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sung the same again while he wept with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight and I plucked a hollow reed and I made a rural pen and I stained the water clear and I wrote my happy songs every child made joy to hear. You could read that to a child and the child would enjoy it. It's so simple. You can't get any simpler than Blake. But what's he saying? I'm, I only want to take a minute because this is not our, we're not supposed to be doing literature but sorry can't help myself. What's he saying? What's going on in this one? This is the opening to his collection, Songs of Innocence. You've got to answer this back there, because you're young. You should know this. What's he saying? It's so simple. A child could. Your son's not going to want to come again. <laughs> What's he saying? What's he saying? Bob, do you have? No. He sits, he, he pipes, you know? He loves music, he's piping songs of pleasant glee. Suddenly, he's a child on a cloud who's laughing and he pipes a song about a lamb. And um, the, the child on the cloud is so moved that he's moved to tears. So he says to him, drop your pipe, your happy pipe, sing songs. So he does it again, and he sings, and the child starts weeping again. He's so moved by Blake's songs. And then he said, Piper, sit down and write that all may read. So he vanished from my sight. He left then, and I plucked a hollow reed, and I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear, and I wrote my happy songs. Every child may joy. What's the difference between piping something and writing something? Say it again. Why? Explain that. Slow down, okay, sir. The writing sticks around longer than the memory of the pipe Yeah. A a pipe is more physically limited. Only those physically in your presence can hear it. If you write it's universal. You can take that right. By the way, that's not true. To, that's not as true today because we've got media who's taking, you know, that's taking songs. Every, but then, a pipe was confined to the immediate audience, whoever's around. You could within hearing. But once you write something, it's available universally. It's not limited by time and space. So this is this is a poem about a calling. An angel comes to him. And he's so moved by what he's doing that he says, do this. He's moved more deeply and he says, do this. And Blake's on his way. It's a calling. If you've read Blake's poetry, you'll know that, that it's, all of his poetry is done in that spirit. So it's a poem about a calling. 
What could be simpler? Somebody sits down and plays a flute. And the next thing, <laughs> it's like Moses. You have to be careful what you do because God may call on you. The next thing you know, he's this child saying, do more, do more, do more, do more. Better be careful what you guys do. Any other comments on this before we start? Well, I noticed that lamb is capitalized. Which means? I would think that it's referring to Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Melody, do you have a response to this poem? <coughs> I kind of thought that the crown boy was uh, like his muse. Yeah. 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 You can also see that muse is a inspiration, a voice, you know. Yeah. I think the reason the child is so fitting is because it's an image of innocence, you know. It's a little bit different from a muse, but yeah. Yes. It's his inspiration. Okay, let's let's start. Because I've got to get this to you directly. Okay, this is as brief a summary as I can give of Fide Ratio. This is going to be my effort at, at getting to the whole of it. Um, the most important, the, the central issue, intuition, the governing intuition of Fide Ratio is that there is one truth. And I want to underscore that. I sent out my notes to Ellie this afternoon to have her print them off so that they could be available. And I had, there are two truths. There's revelation and there's philosophy, okay? That's what John Paul says, okay? And it suddenly struck me that there's a danger in putting it that way. I don't think John Paul will, I don't think he will mind me doing this. To put it that way makes it sound as if there's two truths. John Paul makes clear that's not so. He said, the full truth was revealed by Christ. That's in the beginning. We've already gone through the passages. The fullness of truth was revealed in Christ. There is nothing more to say. He is the ultimate truth. He's the source of everything. Okay? Um, he revealed the mysteries. In fact, one of the sections of that chapter was Christ as the revealer. He reveals, he reveals all the mysteries of the kingdom in their fullness. In John, he makes clear again and again, in me you see the Father. There's nothing to know about the Father that Christ hasn't shown. His love, his justice, how important education is, teaching the disciples, um, going to a death. Trusting for anybody who follows him that there will be a risen life afterward. That's the short of it. It's all there. That's it. So in whatever way those truths are enveloped in mysteries, as they are, they still um, reveal a lot to us that we can grasp with our minds and with faith. Yeah? So at the heart of John Paul's Fide Ratio is this one truth. There is one truth, not more. One, Christ revealed it. But at the same time that we have that truth through revelation, by God speaking to us, we also have in the human order the struggles to attain truth rationally. 
through philosophy. So through our natural efforts, we long to know the truth, grasp the truth with our minds. That gave rise to the philosophic tradition. And he, and he, he makes that clear in the beginning when he says, you know, on the wall of Delphi, Delphi was printed, know thyself. That comes from Socrates. Know thyself. Um, remember, Socrates was called the wisest man because he knew his ignorance. He wanted to understand the truth of things. He went around, he kept getting in trouble because he kept asking people questions that they didn't want to, they couldn't answer. So there are, there's one truth, but there's two ways of approaching it, two, two traditions, two modes, however we want to look at it. There's revelation, which gives rise to theology. And there is human truth as it's discovered by the human intellect, which gives us philosophy. So the whole point for him is to try to bring theology and philosophy together, faith and reason. Yeah? And he, he's, there's no ambiguity. He says again and again, the revealed truth lacks nothing. We know it. We have it. There can't be a doubt. That's God's, God doesn't fool around. God doesn't deceive. It's there. If we're fooling around with it, that's a fault of our own. But philosophers using their minds face a different struggle. It's not revealed. They've got to use their powers of reason. So what happens early on is what we call the beginning of the Socratic tradition or philosophy. The pre-Socratics, all of those people who, um, Parmenides and others who dealt with these questions that Socrates picked up with a kind of fullness. Plato inherited that from Socrates. Socrates was his great master. And, um, and these academies start forming and um, Aristotle is one of them. And Aristotle begins to see that there were some things that Plato missed and he, he actually corrects Plato on some matters. And that's the beginning of the philosophic tradition. That will carry through in the Middle Ages. St. Augustine is a Platonist. He came to Christ through Plato. And when Aristotle was re recovered in the West in about the ninth or 10th century, because he was lost, it was a Platonic Middle Ages. When he's recovered, St. Thomas will pick that up. And St. Thomas will do amazing things that have never been done since. He will use Aristotle to, to reveal things about the world. Some, somebody who's platonic can't see. They would never get to. Plato just had a, a negative attitude towards physical reality, the body. He called the body a prison house. Aristotle didn't have that problem. He saw physical reality as good. So through Aristotle, we would get to the physical sciences, material causes, the causes and material things. But the way into them was Aristotle, St. Thomas. And shortly after St. Thomas wrote, um, the Middle Ages come to an end with the Copernican Revolution, you all know this, and um, the Protestant Reformation. That sets in motion the modern world. So John Paul is making clear that there's one truth, but there are two ways of approaching it. Up until the modern world, to, up until about the Reformation, philosophy always checked itself against the truth because in the Christian Middle Ages, philosophers knew that they got that revelation from God. So they had a guide. In the modern world, when with the advent of science, people begin to question that. You know what happens in the Renaissance. Those of you who've been with the class know because when, when Copernicus makes his um, discoveries, 
that the Ptolemaic universe was not the right model of things. Ptolemy's way missed some things. It, he thought that the Earth was at the center of the universe. Ptolemy, or Copernicus corrects that and says, no, that's not true. The sun's at the center. And it created a different model. When that happened, every, everybody began to doubt the church authority, any authority, because science suddenly uncovered this huge mistake. It's from that point that um, people begin to look to the sciences with the kind of confidence they used to look to God with. And that shift takes place. And once that happens, philosophies begin to separate themselves from revelation. And we've got the problems of the modern world. That all of these people begin to come up with these philosophies, but they no longer carry on their work with any sense that there's been a revealed truth. Science has dismissed that. It's gone. So we've got the divisions of the modern world. That's his concern. What he's doing is trying to call a modern world back to bring those two things together. Faith and reason, theology, philosophy. God's revealed world with natural knowledge. Okay, that's the whole of Fide Ratio. And importantly, and I, don't, I do not want to I do not want to um, short-circuit this or undervalue it. Um, those of you who have it or want, you, you don't have to look. I'm just, I want to read the end from the ending. This is really important. He ends, he ends Fidei Orazio saying, af after he's used his powers of reason to make a rational argument, right? He's not saying believe and be saved. He's saying, use your heads. <laughs> Find your head somewhere. Um, he says at the very end, I turn in the end, this is section 108, the very last page, turn, I turn in the end to the woman whom the prayer... How many modern philosophers are women? I, I, I only know of a couple. Um, yeah, there's only a couple. Edith Stein comes immediately to mind. Um, most philosophers are men. men. Men live far more in their heads than women. Um, that's partly a way of paying a compliment to women, even if it's not heard that way. But um, he says at the end, I turn in the end to the woman whom the prayer of the church invokes as seat of wisdom. It's not philosopher whose life itself is a true parable illuminating the reflection contained in these pages. For between the vocation of the Blessed Virgin and the vocation of true philosophy, there is a deep harmony. Just as the Virgin was called to offer herself entirely as human being and as woman, that God's word might take flesh and come among us, so too philosophy is called to offer its rational and critical resources that theology as the understanding of faith may be fruitful and creative. He's writing this at a time when a lot of philosophers, I, you may not have been aware of this, I, I was aware of it because I was at a college, but a lot of, of theologians in philosophies that at that time were turning towards liberation theology, which was Marxist. They're following Marx and hoping for a liberation in the world to bring the heaven here, to bring the kingdom on earth. I, you've I've talked with them about, I've mentioned that to you. 
So he's appealing to everybody, but he's clearly got theologians on, their, on his mind because, because instead of turning to Mary, which would be embarrassing for them, right, they're turning to Marx. Um, <laughs> I'm in danger. I'm getting close to danger right now. Suzanne's starting to make faces at me. Who would you turn to? I'm not kidding. Who would you turn to if you had a choice to study? The woman who bore Christ, who brought, who was the means of bringing Christ into the world, who carried him, who carried him in her womb? Or a philosopher who carries all of these philosophies, not in a womb, but in their heads? He's saying, follow Mary because she was open to the word of God. How many men respond to the world with the same openness to receive the word of God into them to help them motivate them in their philosophic quests? Is that clear? So it's no accident. It's no accident. He's been talking for, you know, 100 pages about the importance of reconciling faith and reason. And then he ends saying, I, I turn to her. Um, just as the virgin was called to offer herself entirely as human being, as woman, that God's word might take flesh and come among her, so too philosophy is called to offer its rational and critical resources that theology, as the understanding of faith, that's its particular and, may be fruitful and creative. Mary, may Mary, seed of wisdom, be a sure haven for all who devote their lives to the search for wisdom. May the journey into wisdom, sure and final goal of all true knowledge, be freed of every hindrance by the intercession of the one who in giving birth to the truth and treasuring it in her heart has shared it forever with the world. I, I think probably you know me well enough, those who have been away. You know how much I value philosophy. I hope you do. My, the whole point of what I've been doing is not scripture, it's been literature. And behind it has been a sort of philosophy, but you know. How many men or women, how many men today would undertake um, a quest in philosophy, particularly under the direction of heads of departments of philosophy at universities? How many of them would do that um, with some sense that they're being guided by Mary? I would say a great majority would find that too humiliating, that they'd feel that they were cramped, that they wouldn't be able to do their job unless they were freed to go anywhere. That somehow it would be a, um, an indictment of their integrity to bind themselves to anything. That to be true philosophers, they'd have to get free of everything like that. That's the modern world. John Paul's ending this saying, Mary, watch over us. He's encouraging philosophers to say, take her seriously. Here's the word of God. You know that one of his critiques and the reason he came up with his list is that so many schools have arisen because philosophers, thinkers, have separated themselves from the word. So where we're going tonight, I mean, I'm going to cut this short. Now. Where we're going tonight is to take up these disorders and see how we would answer them, what we could do. But let me stop. Was all that clear? I think that's the kernel. That's in a nutshell is what John Paul is doing. And it's why it's so important because we are the most educated people. The world has never been as well educated as we are. But one of the effects of that education is, is that we 
Um, we can think whatever we want. Um, our truth is our own, or some people are have more truth than the other. Marx, some people believe that Marx has more truth than somebody else. <coughs> that um, we've discovered things with our powers of reason. We don't need faith. Here's what we've produced. And it's one of the reasons the Catholic Church has come out condemning the modern world. It is said explicitly, the modern world is evil. It's, it, it has denounced all these things because from the church's perspective, they're all anti-human. They, in some ways, they, without knowing it, without intending it, they in some ways strike at our humanity. And John Paul is arguing they do this because they have dissociated themselves from the Word of God. So that's just in a nutshell what John Paul is dealing with. Let me stop for a minute. Any questions for some of you? <laughs> Any questions um, or comments or... You know that one of the things, I mean, it, I, I underscored it, I didn't do it tonight, but let me do it now. You know that one of John Paul's concerns is that we have to learn these truths well enough so that we can pass them on in a way in which people can understand. At, at, the, at the center of his argument is the assumption we cannot do this if we don't learn to have a better command of language. We have to be able to grasp it. We have to use language to get these through just the way Christ did when he was here. He didn't jump the natural world. He didn't just jump to mysteries. His, his entire life was spent arguing, teaching, using parables, making statements, logic. You know what an a fortiori Argument a fortiori means if this is the case, then it's even more true that this will be the case. That's an a fortiori. It's if this is the case, it'll be more so. And you know, if you do this, it'll be worse for you. If you, you know, Christ does that again, he's using logic. God, there's nothing that he does practically that, that isn't based in reason. He's communicating using language in ways that people understand. It leads to the problem. Whereas the disciples say, but none of this, why are you teaching this? I don't understand. He takes them aside and he clears it up. But he says, but I do this in parables because I do not want some other people to hear this. Because he knows what will happen if they do. So we have to work at using language and being able to use it to convey this to others. Or it's useless. For us, I mean, for most of us, yeah. Let me stop. So that's, that's Fide Ratio in a nutshell. Any, any questions or comments before we take up the disorders? Just a quick comment. I read an article today that a friend of mine, who is not a religious person, uh, she has quoted this particular minister uh, several times. And he was condemning people, and I, the reason I'm bringing this up because I think it's, we're up against this a lot, uh, who try to spread their faith, calling them uh, arrogant and saying that we believe we're better people 
than the other people. Yeah. And while I disagree with that, I think that that is an idea that a lot of people do have when you try to talk to them. Sure. Sure. No, it's true, yeah. yeah. He claims to be a Christian pastor. And what's your, just off the top of your head, what's your response to that? I mean, I know you're, what's your response? My response would, well, I would probably start by telling a story because I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in East Texas, you know, with a lot of people in my age in the town, and I was really upset because the nun said I had to marry a Catholic and I didn't want to marry Charles Brickman. <laughs> 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 I had. You know, we've got this down. It's, it's national right now. Okay. I had good friends who were Christians from other churches who talked to me about the fact that they felt that being Catholic, I was going to hell because of the personal relationship. Yeah, right. And the first thing that I would say is that those people are coming from, they're not trying to slam you if this is something that is so important to them that out of love they're wanting to they're wanting this for you as well. They're wanting yeah. you to have yeah. this. Yeah. Heather, I thought you did you have a comment? I mean can you in, in light in, in in the context of going to these disorders and what we're facing and going to the world because that's a personal did you because I, I saw your response did you have a response to this or um, not, or, not a particular one. I mean I, I I have run into the same thing. Of, I was having a conversation with a Protestant several years ago. It's like a little friend of my cousin or something. And I was put in the awkward position. They were like, here, talk to her. <laughs> and, and she'll answer your questions. And I was like, uh, okay. And so I just, what I tend to rely on is I try to, I, I try to reach their hearts. And like show them, you know, in the gospel, like the comparison of the Ark of the Covenant to Mary and stuff like that, and try to reach back. And I use like Eucharistic miracles and things. Things that are tangible. Um, the witness of saints, you know, things that are tangible to try and reach people who don't believe. And I, this is, I mean, I'm. Hard. Yeah, really. really. Interested to see what As a matter of fact, here, here's my opening because I want to step away from this. Just one comment, and then I want to turn to this stuff. Um, I mean, one of the first things that would come to my mind if I were with that person is um, that I, I can think of far more instances when Christ is saying, "Go out." His last commission to the disciples: "Go out and baptize." There's a call to evangelize. He taught. Um, he spent a lot of time. If you read Matthew and set it next to John, it's like you're looking at two different people. Because in, in Matthew and the Synoptic Gospels, you're watching Christ teach a lot. Just parable. I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't counted them. There must be 25 or 30 parables, and I may be exaggerating. In John, there's seven, seven or eight episodes. That's it. There's no parables. It's I am, I am, I am, I am. But you're watching men teach. And the whole purpose of what he's doing is to call. It's an interesting, one of the things we'll see when we get there. When Christ sets out, it's so clear that he set out to bring the lost sheep back. 
He says, do not go to the, he says this to his disciples, do not go to the Samaritans, do not go, your purpose is to get to the lost sheep. He runs into the Canaanite woman, and he says, um, why give you this stuff? She said, even the dogs get scraps from the masters. He's so overcome by her love that he answers her. Her daughter's cured. He meets the centurion who's Roman, not Jewish. So there's two people not Jewish, and he finds himself being pulled out of, I think, what he came to do to answer these people. Um, so he's having, what, what's the word? By the seat of his pants or, you know, the, he's having to suddenly do things that he wasn't prepared to do. But over and over, throughout, certainly in, in the synoptics and certainly in Matthew, you see Christ teaching again and again and again. He's not saying, I'm going to sit here or I've got the truth. Um, everything he's doing is showing he's got to take that out because the chosen people have got it wrong. I mean, I would argue if I were talking, I'd say um, there's such a division in Christianity today. Lots of people think they've got it right. So did the Jews. But we saw that they didn't. Is there some way in which some of us may have? I mean, I would just be asking questions like that. Is there some way in which some of us have got it wrong? So I'm beginning with a question to make this person think. I mean, I'm not going to hit him over the head right away, but I will get to a point of saying, finally, you know, here are these truths. Are, do some of us have it wrong? To finally get around to saying, is there a greater truth here than here? I mean, you know, that's... Um, so the problem you're describing is so, particularly in a, in a South that's historically Christian and Protestant, so, and deeply Christian, but let's start, okay? Here, here's, here to, this is to pick up your point. To, it goes exactly, this is what I wanted to end with to get us to these. Um, Christ taught his disciples. Here, I'm gonna, I've gotta get out. My feet are going up, my age is, sorry. Melody, are you okay? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, can you hear me, Chuck? What's his name? Ronan. See? Ronan. Ronan? Yes. Ronan? Ronan. Can you hear me or would you rather not? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want to be a temptation to your homework if you got homework to do, but okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm genuinely glad you're here. Um, I want to go back to, to, because I'm not going to whitewash anything. I think if you know me, I'm not going to whitewash anything here. This is how hard it is. Christ came for the lost sheep. He came for the Jew his own people. He was born Jewish. He's into a Jewish world. He came to recall the Jewish people back to Yahweh, to the Father. Wherever he goes, he's encountered people who have turned away from him. Generally speaking, it's only because he performs these miracles that people start believing. So he's encountering dis this. I'm trying to make this as clear as I can to you guys. I'm not going to wipe. If anybody comes out of this evening thinking that evangelizing is easy, I have not done my job. Because to me, it's, it's a crucifying work. Um, wherever he went, he was met with disbelief everywhere. So he didn't run into neighbors who would make his life easier for him, saying, I certainly understand and I agree with you and I go along with you. Wherever he went, 
he met adamant resistance with the scribes and the Pharisees. So he wasn't just meeting, you know, unneighborly neighbors. He came up against people who would listen to him um, and say, for you to claim that means you, you think you're God. You're blaspheming. You belong to the wrong church. You're the anti-savior. I hope you know where, I mean, I hope you're following this. You're the anti-savior. So it's not anti, you're Catholics, you're the anti-Christ. You're the anti-savior. You're, you're saying things that are blasphemous. So, so it's not like he was encountering, you know, a welcoming audience. All, I mean, he wasn't all the time. He had to go against people who denied him, resisted him, found fault in, found fault in him when he was doing good. I mean, that's when I listen to the gospel as a time in church and I hear he's performing this good act and a good act that's right in front of a person and all they can see is bad. So to start with, um, he didn't he didn't encounter a welcoming audience. So how's that for starters? Um, his disciples didn't understand him a lot, a lot. When they come back that one day, he says, who do they say I am? And they don't have a clue. They don't know. And it's Peter who says, we've gone through this. You're Christ. And, and repeatedly he says, do I have to put up with you? How long do I have to do this? These are his disciples. For several years, he's working with them. And they, they don't understand. He goes to his death and one of them denies him. Denies that he had any part in his life. Um, when he rose again, the, the, the disciples, it was the women, interestingly, who made the opening again. Um, um, the disciples were hiding in an upper room, afraid. Their, their savior was crucified. He was dead. So everything that they put their trust in for three years, gone, gone. Can you imagine them doing anything else but saying, why did I believe in this guy? Why, why, why in the world did I put my trust in this guy? He's dead, gone. All my hopes of um, putting down the Roman Empire for the Jewish world to recover itself and this great glory. These are all religious. These are all deeply religious men. They've been with Christ for three years. They're in an upper room. He's dead. Suddenly appears and he, <laughs> when the door is locked, he's there. And he's risen. So these men who a moment before are in fear because they've committed their life to this man and suddenly he's gone. Where did they turn? If they, if they believed in this guy for three years, they believed in this guy for three years, put their everything that they held valuable in trust in him and he's gone, what do they do? I'm saying this seriously. What, what, you lose your home and your job. What do you do? This is God. They thought he was the savior. They put their trust in him. He's dead. Where do they go? What do they turn to after having given their lives like that? They're all in an upper room. Christ suddenly appears. And suddenly they've got to see fulfilled what they had partly believed but could have never completely understood until that moment. Because now he's resurrected. Who's not there? Thomas. And I, honestly, I don't know how to read that. Either he's braver than they are or more stupid. I don't, you know, I don't know. But he comes a week or days later 
because, and he's told about it, he says, I won't believe it till I, I won't believe it, I will not believe it until I put my hand. He comes, and then Christ says, um, blessed he who is not seen, you know. So, is it easy? In our world, how do you take a world that's denied Christ, we're the only civilization that's existed after he came, that as a civilization has denounced him, turned away from him, we put our trust in material wealth, in science. How do you confront, because, I mean, you made the point last week, a pagan world would have been more receptive to Christ because at least they believed in gods. We believe in materialism, that the only thing that's real is matter, there's no afterlife. So the only important thing is wealth, security, power, reputation. Those are the four, those are Aristotle and Bo uh, Boethius' four goods. They're all good, they're worldly goods. But if that's all there are, then it means those are the, gonna be the most important things in your life. You're gonna do everything you can for them. God, are you kidding, why? You can have those. So we're dealing with a completely different world. So it, is it, who's going to have an easy time evangelizing? I'm just doing everything I can to say, if you're expecting anything less, you're not, your eyes are not open. This is not our world. There's not going to be anything easy to bring in Christ to this world because everything, everything in the world is... And even half the religious Christian world is against what we believe. So, but, eventually. So the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is still at work. And that's, I think that's the beautiful part, is that the Holy Spirit is there to, um, to help us help others and to open their hearts so that those graces can flow in, so that those seeds can be planted. Yep, yep. Um, so I think there's so much going on the spiritual level that we that we can only have faith in that we can't see. So that when we do make an appeal, when we do try to combat these things, I, I think the Holy Spirit is right there by us, like making sure that that penetrates somehow, some way. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, and I would only add that lots of people aren't open because they love these other things more. Um, and the other thing is that I, um, I think for so many of us that, the, that our openness to the Holy Spirit so often waits on suffering, that so long as things are going okay, but when we become involved in some kind of suffering and we, we can't just turn back on the things that we've given our lives to, then we make an opening to Him, you know. I mean, you're, the, the, God is never not here. I hope, I mean, I hope I've made that clear. He's never not here for everyone. Never. The question is how open we are. Let's go to these, okay? We've talked about materialism. I want to take these. Any last comments? Materialism means not just surrounding our lives with matter. Materialism as a philosophy means there's nothing else but matter. And the point we made last week is matter does not explain itself. Accidents, contingencies, one thing following another doesn't explain. Matter has to have a cause outside of itself that can't be explained by matter. The Big Bang Theory is not 
evidence. It's not, it's not a proof. It's an accident in itself. If every accident has a pre-existing accident, a contingency, they never explain themselves. You have to get back to something that's not contingent. That thing is God. There's something there that already exists before things can come into existence. That's the only logical answer that I know to materialism. I want to try to keep these things as simple as I can. So one of them is, one of the dominant ideologies that we've grown up with is scientific. The, there's nothing but matter. The only thing that's real is matter. And people assume that. Um, but the answer is there is something other than matter does not explain itself. So any, for anybody to take that position, in my mind, is to make themselves vulnerable because they can't explain it. Ultimately, they can't. The Big Bang is not an explanation. It's a myth. It's, a, it's an attempt to answer something that has the nature of an accident itself. Where did that come from? How did that happen? Any attempt to prove a protein, which is the basis of life, is absurd. It's, it's a million to the millionth place. It can't explain itself. It's abs absolutely improbable. So every effort on the part of scientists to make those appeal fails. Science cannot deal well with ultimate questions. Where did life come from? Where did matter come from? Science can't deal with that. So, the, no, sorry. There's no empirical data. Right, you know, right, uh, right. And how do you explain, I mean, to, to take John's point, if, if matter explains everything and the mind is nothing but um, um, effects of neurons bouncing around in our head, how do you explain reason, reason, when reason itself can capture, can grasp universals? Aristotle says the, the, the soul is in a way all things. The human soul can take the form of, not matter, the form, the essence. It can take the essence of all things into itself. You can't explain reason by matter. It's, a, it's more of a spiritual power than a material power. A, 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 a computer can't duplicate that power. It can, it can duplicate mechanical actions. It cannot get to what the human, what human consciousness can do. Evolutionist, empirical scientists cannot explain consciousness. Okay. Relativism. Let's take these up one at a time. What's, what is relativism and what's the problem with it? What's relativism? Relativism says that there is no objective truth, that everything is relative to situation or to occurrence, that everything is subjective. It's relative subjective, yeah. What's wrong with that? Uh, I mean, there is objective truth. And, uh, and if everything is subjective, then, then there is no truth at all. I don't believe you. You're just asserting something. Give me an explanation. <laughs> what's, wrong with, what's wrong with relativism? Mary, what's wrong with relativism? It, it just holds that something is true for now in my situation, but in your situation or next year, it might not be true. So what? I'm asking somebody. I want to, who, who cares? What's wrong with that? 
What's the matter with that? You can never agree with anyone. Yeah, go ahead, flush it out. Um, you know, if you're going to have your true and I have going to have my true, we're never going to get to any agreements. There's no solutions to anything. Yeah. It's like a compass that's not squatted. You can't depend on north being north. Right. There's yeah. No there's no right or wrong. Right, all of those, yeah. Is everybody clear? I, I mean, I think the part of the problem is if truth is relative, there is absolutely no way in which to communicate because you, you have nothing in common. And if that's true, that means we're all shut up in our private worlds. Why make any effort to communicate at all? I mean, the fact that we're communicating presumes that there must be something there. We wouldn't do it. But relativism rests on the belief that there is no common truth. You don't have anything in common. There's no right or wrong. In which case, there's no way, no, no way to carry on a conversation. You'll always be talking past each other. My truth is not yours. I'll live in my world. You live in yours. It leaves you absolutely isolated. And the strange irony is, if you're isolated, why are you even talking? Why would you even do it? I mean, John Paul, in the middle of his, said, in his um, encyclical, said, truth finally means entrusting ourselves to somebody else. It's not just in our heads. It involves an entrusting, a being open to somebody else. Anybody else on relativism? What about eclecticism? Doc, what's eclecticism? I liked your, what's eclecticism? Melody, what's eclecticism? I like that. It sounds like a smart. Why? What's wrong with that? Somebody could say. Somebody. Somebody could say. Look, I'm picking and choosing. It means I'm open to everybody. What's wrong? Because I would ask them what truth is. Then, because if as Catholics we believe there is one truth, God, and if we're picking, if each and every person picks and chooses what they feel is correct or real. Then we'll never be able to come to a consensus. Again, just like relative. Denies the existence of an objective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to wonder if you pick something from Islam and something from Judaism and something from Christianity or one part of Christianity and another, why do all these people hold these different beliefs? Um, why would you pick and choose? They, are they all wrong because they hold different beliefs? I mean, it keeps taking us back to this other question of, is there a truth? Art is truth relative. Is are, are Islam and are those who are Islamic or those who Jewish or those who are Christian? They all hold different beliefs, but they're all okay because we can believe. Well, and if I have a truth that I think that I use eclecticism to pick and choose, how else are you ever going to agree with me? Because you need to be choose your own set. Right. So I have to believe that you are smart enough to get the truth. So it's, it's a fundamental. I, yep. I'm sure there are a lot of religions out there that do it. Yeah. I think these days. Yeah. Yeah. But it makes sense. 
Yeah, you know, it does. Anybody else? We, we share many beliefs in common with faiths like Islam right. and right. Hinduism and Buddhism. So we do, we do uh, not that we draw from those faiths necessarily, but we believe some of the same things. But there are those who say all religions are the same. Right. Right. Equally, equally true. Yeah. Isn't that a, isn't there a term? <laughs> what? Believing that all religions are the same, that's a heresy, right? Um, that all religions are equal. The church has a term for it. Yeah, we're exactly. saying. I take it that John Paul was, was warning us against a sort of philosophizing of a cheat. That his, his critique of eclecticism was really superficial. Slow down, Chuck, say the last part. His critique was that was really superficial. It's like philosophizing of a cheat. Well, here's something very appealing about the Judaic tradition. I'll take that. And here's this nice little nugget from uh, Hinduism. Oh, that makes sense. I'll take that. And then you sort of melt these things together. And yeah. An easy explanation when their whole lifetime is dedicated. Right. 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 And by the way, we talked about this. Melanie, I'm going to come to you because I want to put the question back on you again. Um, we've talked about this um, a lot. If somebody's grown up um, is Islamic, if somebody's grown up Catholic, um, the chances of persuading that person out of that belief are going to be really small because they've grown up their life believing that. So um, you can't just encounter somebody who's lived Islamic and think a rational explanation is going to convince this guy to convert any more than you can get a Catholic. Although lots of people from Islam convert, lots of people from Catholic world. What's, how do you answer Melody, because your description was perfect. Eclecticism means picking and choosing. How do you answer, so when somebody says, here, to Mike's statement, so all religions have this common basis. So Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all believe that there's a God. So you have, a, you have a, a starting point that makes it possible for you to pick and choose. So you can say, all religions are the same. What do, what do you say in answer to that person? What's wrong with that position? Well, the reason that I would, I would disagree with that is that I would say... Um, hoping that maybe you just pick the ones that you like, or, you know, Muslim religion Can you slow down? Because I just, I, I know I'm having a heart. I think it's partly my ears, but I don't want her to miss what you're, can you slow down and speak up? Well, we shouldn't confine it just to religions, as John Paul was talking about, picking for different schools of philosophy. philosophy. To support your conclusion. Right, right. Can, can I share something? 
Yes. Um, as a child, my parents briefly were involved in the Baptist church. And uh, my father got very angry about the situation in the church. Um, so he took us away and had us go to this place called Unity Church of Christianity. Unity? Unity Church of Christianity. Yeah. And what they did is, and this is very interesting because I never, I didn't know this word, but it, they basically combined Hinduism and Christian thought and they picked and choose different things and they put it all together as this Church of Christianity. But there, right. you, as a child, it was given a Bible, but we never opened the Bible. They would give us little right. sayings that right. kind of fit into the right. right. thing. And right. I was exposed to that for many years as a child and a teen teenager. And as I grew to speak to other people of other faiths, Though my faith was all mixed up, you yeah. know, I came to realize there's there's diametrically opposing thoughts here. Right. Nothing meshes together. Right. Right. There's no real truth here. I ended up <laughs> accepting nothing. Yeah. Right. I accept right. nothing, and when John met me, I told him I was an atheist. I didn't believe in anything because. Everything that I was exposed to, nothing matched, nothing was truthful. Yeah. There was no one truth. Yeah. It was just a big mess. So I ended up starting from scratch all over again. I didn't have anything to really hang on to. Yeah. Well, life. you had your husband. So um, that, was, that was my experience as a child yeah. and a yeah. teenager. Yeah. And it was right. so confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Let me offer just one thought on this question because I want to get to, I want to try to cover these. I, I think I told you the story about my experiences with Seven Day Adventists, you know, constantly. I so admired what they did. I mean, you know, I welcomed them and we'd have talks. And at one point, because I didn't realize they didn't believe in the, I didn't know enough about it. I mean, I just, they, they were religious. They worked hard at it. I admired the fact that they did what they did because I, I, I would have said to Christians, look at what these people are doing, and we're sitting at home watching TV. You know, that was, but then I learned they didn't believe in the Trinity. Here's where I want to go. At one point when they had the meeting, when they, we were sitting down, I said, you believe in, um, in uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah, sorry, Jehovah, yes. And I said, um, which in your mind shows the greater love? Um, a father who would create, because in their mind there was no Trinity and there was no, the second person of the Trinity did not take on human nature. So it wasn't God giving his life up. According to them, Christ was a special person and he went to our death. So it was a special death. And my question to them was, which would be more um, deserving of worth or our admiration or our love? Um, if somebody, a God, had a human being sacrifice his life, or a God who shared divinity with a second person who let that 
person or that Godhead take on human nature and 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 that put the question sort of boldly to them because the point of it was um, a God who would have a human being sacrifice his life is in my mind not as worth much as a God whose only, who's only begotten son would give his life. The reason I'm pointing that out is because one of, the, one of the things that I would bring to this conversation with somebody who's eclectic is we all believe in a God. Do we believe in the nature of God the same way the Jews do or the Muslims? No, we do not. We believe in a Trinitarian God so that at some point in a conversation with somebody who's picking and choosing, you have to raise that question, is the God the same God? We believe in a trinity of persons, one God. You'd have to be able to explain the trinity. I've done that over and over and over again with you guys. And, and I've done it in two simple sentences. The image of himself, you know, he conceives of himself. That's his son, the love between. That's as simple as saying you've got a thesis. You've got an idea of a thesis. Now incarnate it, write it out. That's a part of our nature. The, trin the trinity is active in us all the time. Write a thesis, you'll watch a trinitarian activity. I've got an idea in my head, my love of it, the seriousness with, I, with which I take it, will make me write, incarnate it, put it out on a piece of paper. That's a Trinitarian act. So I've said, if you're in a discussion with somebody who's saying pick and choose, at some point you've got to say, do we all believe in the same God? Is it the same God? Do, the, do, the, do those who are Jewish conceive of the God the same way we do? No, they do not. Does any one of those religions have somebody who had a divine nature who actually took on human flesh and went to a cross? Buddhism, Buddhism and Hinduism are full of mythical figures of gods dying. But those are mythical figures. We are the only religion in the world in which God took on a human nature and died for it. No other, it so if you had a, a course in comparative religion, Christianity does not belong there. It's sui generis. It's sui generis by itself. There is no other religion that can make that claim. So if you're going to talk to somebody who's eclectic, at some point you have to get to this question. Mike hit it. You know, we've, we, all, we all believe in a God. There's one God. Yes, we do. But the, the Christian conception of one God is that he is one God, three persons. Why? And, I mean, Islamic are going to say, are you kidding? You're, you're derogating. You're demeaning Godhead. Well, explain it to him. Can you do that? I, I'm going to get tough-minded here. Can any of you make a good defense of the Trinity? If not, how in the world can you take your faith to the world? Because it's one of the separating points. Can any of you make a defense of God having taken on? Can you say why he did that? If you can't, how do you defend our faith? Because if you can't, we're back with Judaism and Islam. We have one God. Or with Hindu and Buddha. The major religions of the world, the ones we most have to hear, secularism, I'm, that's not a religion, but I'm going to, secularism, Hinduism, <coughs> Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. That's it. That's what we have to confront. And of the major ones, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, we all share a belief in a God. Yeah? Um, what's the Islamic God is called? Allah? 
Allah, um, Yahweh, Allah, Yahweh, God, our God. You've got to go to the central mysteries of our faith as Christians. Can you do that? Can you make that defense? What's historicism? What's historicism? John, go ahead. Do you? Right. Yeah, perfect. Everything we know is conditioned by historical periods. There's nothing universal. Remember John Paul talked about, I mean, he spent a good third of the first part of Fide Ratio talking about the importance of the Greco-Roman, that, that Greco-Roman world is essential. Even though the modern world wants to do away with the past, we do away with that. We do away with any ability to get to universals. That Plato, Aristotle taught us that reason could grasp universals. If you're a historicist, you're believing that everything is historically conditioned, that everything, that is, we're back in another kind of relativism, that one truth is just as good as another, it just happened to be historically determined. That's another product of a modern scientific world. All things are conditioned, so we happen to live in a scientific world, we have these truths, they're different from well, what's the answer to that? Chuck, how answer that? How would you answer it? Gosh, a number of ways. One, it occurs to me, is that we've had this striving through 2,000 years of civilization to arrive. Can you slow down? Sorry, can you slow down? We've had this striving through 20 centuries or more to, to arrive at certain universal truths. worked very hard on it. It's uh, just discarding a huge inheritance to, to, to ignore it and to say, well, it only applies to the 15th century or yeah. the 4th century BC. They were humans and don't the same problems we were. We're after the same ultimate questions. Yeah. We need to know them, but they did, not just discarded. Anybody else? I've run across this one quite a bit. Uh, answer it. How would you answer um, it? With racial issues and dealing with um, oh, yeah. issues of uh, pertaining to like theology of the body. People will say, well, you know, when the church came up with these rules about, you know, not having sex before marriage. They didn't understand like where we are now. And we have this we great freedom. Possibly be held to those standards because it was a different time. Right. But, right. So anytime somebody says, "But it was a different time," you're dealing with historicism. Now answer it. I mean, there. It seems like all of these come back to truth. You know, there are the church. It's in the Bible. Like the church has certain, there are 10 commandments. The church has certain truths. Leave the church out of it for a second. Can you use reason? Just if you can, stay, stay with something, or if you can, point to something ordinary. Because some people won't believe in the Bible. So, so then we're not responsible for anything that we do. Because we're just products of our time. And so we should not be judged, even in our own current time. How, how, can, how can you judge us? Because... At some future time, they're going to say, "Well, they didn't know." Yes, yeah, absolutely. No. Yes. Yes to everything. Yes. Yes. Everything. Wait. Wait. Yes to everything you're saying. Now, give me an example, commonplace, ordinary, a mother looking at her children or her husband, of something universal that you can point to as evidence that universals. Ex so, to go to Chuck's point, 
but without, you know, history, I mean, leave it all, because we don't, because they meet, let's say they don't believe in it, so you can't go there. Can you point to something in your ordinary existence, mother, wife, that is evidence that there are universals? Consequences. Sorry? Consequences. When you think of, when you, when you talk to a child, or, or your spouse, or whatever, and history does repeat itself, so if they have not learned consequences, or you point out consequences to that person, history does have a pattern, and if you rewrite history to what you think it should be, yeah. and don't really understand the principles of consequences, which is universal, but yet it seems in today's world it's being really washed away. Yeah. Uh, Can you make it concrete? Give me a, specify, so you're, you're, you're trying to teach a child consequences. Can you, can you frame it, so when you're illustrating it, can you find something that's concrete to make, to make your example, your teaching concrete? I'm just thinking of my son growing up. It's just, you know, if you choose to be with those kids, those friends in life, this is what you're going to become. So you have a choice. You follow that road. So, and even though I always talk about religion, but in the case of school, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you have to have to know, you know who you hang around. They don't all have to be friends. But anyways, consequences. That was always the thing I thought. Because my kid had a real hard time. He had ADD real bad. And he never could understand consequences until about 15 years old. He's not alone. Not, I mean, I... But I would say, I would give him to choices. And he just looked at you really, because he was such a good kid. He was a comic. But the point is, it didn't find the light bulb didn't come on until about that. It day. takes a while. I mean, it takes a while to grow up, I think, for most of us. That's universal to me. Yeah. What about something as simple as... Simple as Can you speak up, Doc? What about something as simple as if you put your hand in that fire, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Um, and that's universal. Explain why it's universal, just because I, I know some people had a problem with what universality means. Just flush it out, can you? It happens every time. Never, never deviates. You put your hand in a fire, you're going to get burned. Yeah. Period. So the universal principle behind that is? You put your hand in a fire. Well, there's a law to nature. I mean, fire has a nature. Yeah. It's, so there's a law, in, like gravity. Right. You know, you step outside of a second story window, or, or you drink too much. Here, better. You drink too much. This is from C.S. Lewis, by the way. If you drink too much, the, the law of freedom that we enjoy as human beings is gone. We make ourselves susceptible to a law of nature. So we lose our human nature. We, we sacrifice some of our human nature and take our place among plants and animals. Is that clear? So by drinking too much, if we fall over, we're more in accord with an unthinking nature. There's a law in nature that's universal. So there's a fire is one aspect of nature. It has a universal property. If you put your, you know, so David, did you have something? Go ahead. Gravity is a natural proof. Right. Right. Analyze it. Tell me what it is. <laughs> All I know is it's a law. You. I mean, it's a law, exactly. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. You're not going to change it. Yeah. You're about to second story of close buildings. What happens? Right. Right. Or drink too much. Or eat too much. I mean, to the, the, but, I mean, one of the things about we, one of the one of the interesting things about the culture that we live in today is that there's a denial that we have any norms in our life. There are no norms. A norm is universal. It, it means 
um, when you go to excesses either way, you're going to have problems. Eat too much, drink too much. Drugs, drugs are not inherently, drugs are, drinking is not, I'm not a Protestant. Drinking is not, gambling is not inherently bad, evil. Drinking, you can playfully gamble on something. You can, you can eat. But when we give in to our appetites and we go to extremes, we deviate from that norm. Remember Aristotle's definition of virtue. Portia, those of you who did Shakespeare with me, Portia, Virtue means a mean between two extremes. How, how hard do we work at... Wait, by the way, this is from our church. It was in the Mass, I think, over Easter Octave. Grace leads us to virtue. We're supposed to be practicing virtue. Is virtue the same for every person? No, it's not, because everybody's inclination is different. I look at our grandchildren, and I think... The, the, the struggle to make this one virtuous would be different from this one because their natures are so different. If one person, if one person, one child, say, is really brave, you want to help him be brave but not be rash because sometimes he can overdo it. I mean, that's part of being a child. You're, lear you're learning to become, hopefully, virtuous. I mean, parents should have that. Is it going to be the same for another child? No, because another child may be very timid. You've got to help him learn to be courageous. But virtue is the same. It means a mean between extreme. And it's going to vary. What do we learn in the purgatorio? Everybody going up the purgatorio had a different struggle with different sins. So there are universals. So when we're talking with somebody who's a historicist, we can, we can go to Suzanne's example. Um, there are things that are universal. Fire, consequences, um, laws things inherent in our nature. If we don't pay attention to them, we can end up destroying ourselves. I'd just like to make one suggestion to your question was, how do we answer this when we're confronted with it? And I think it's important to keep in mind the idea of the burden of proof. So don't accept this. Just say, okay, well, tell me why someone in the Victorian era was so different from us that now the world should apply. You proved to me that that wasn't reliable. We should continue maintain that ethic or that moral. Seems to me they've got more proving to do than we. They want to change things. Why wouldn't they turn it back on you, Chuck, and say, I mean, to, to take Heather's, the attitude towards sexuality were different. Here, I really want to press this, because this is good. Um, the attitude towards sexuality were repressive then. They're not today. We've learned that things are historically conditioned so that what was true hundred years ago is not true today. How would you answer it? Let's just say with respect to sexuality, because that's a big issue in our time. I would say you might be perfectly right, because it's entirely possible and likely the fact that the conditions or mores that obtained 500 years ago weren't all right, but they're not all wrong. And a, well, a basis for rejecting is not just that they were 500 years ago. So we need to look at them individually and determine by what standard we're going to judge whether one was good or bad. We might have some suggestions. Yeah, I would like to take just a second with that because I think sexuality is not. John Paul wrote um, theology of the body. That's not an accident. Um, sexuality is not a small issue in our age. So, how would anybody anybody want to jump in here? You're you're dealing with somebody who's. Give me one second, Mike. You're dealing with somebody who's a historicist who's going to say, 
Look, um, sexual morale, morale was, the sexual morales were different 800 years ago from what they were 300 years ago, from what they are today. Things change. Can you pick up the burden of proof and show that there is something universal about sexuality so you can go back to the Iliad in which the war was caused because Paris took Helen or Shakespeare, we've been doing this, or today to make an argument to show that there's something else people should be looking at. Michael, sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. No, I was going to say that in regards to sexuality, uh, take, any, take a relationship in the modern era even. Uh, show me an example of uh, frivolous sexual activity between two people uh, without any kind of uh, commitment to one another or uh, uh, that does not lead to uh, uh, a downfall. Uh, a, a Some problem, of, uh, yes. A fall from grace. Uh, 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 Leave grace out of it. Just a problem, an ordinary human problem. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's the same, the, the repercussions of frivolous sex 300 years ago are the same that we face today. Right. Let me just, Chuck, I've got to call, I'm going I'm to call this because we're, I've been promising to, I just want to, and then I'll give a minute to you. The Iliad was about a war that started because Paris took Helen. The, sh the face that lost launched us. I mean, we, we read the Iliad together. What was the highest mark of booty in the Iliad? Women. Women. Sexuality was, a th I mean, he never touched sexuality there. What's at the heart of the Odyssey? You can't look anywhere and not deal with sexuality. Odysseus is confronting it everywhere. The Scarlet Letter, American, I mean, Hawthorne. You, I mean, we, you can go through history, it doesn't matter. Sexuality is always going to be one of the um, the most testy trials for human beings because it's the one way in which human beings can propagate our race. It has within it the seeds of continuity, of creativity. You're closer to God in that act and you can conceive life. And it, it has to be one of the most intense pleasures in human experiences. So sexuality, you're dealing with one of the most difficult trials in our nature. It's no accident that it's always been here. And the, the, the question is, can you make a defense and show what happens? Um, because it'll, it'll, one, e either you're gonna end up denying that there is a human nature. If you affirm a human nature, you're gonna say, look at what happens when couples do this or, you know. So it's gonna take us to a question of human nature it's going to take us to um, questions of why the sex act is so central to literature, I mean, to our human experiences from the very beginning. Um, we're going to go to the deepest issues there. I'm going to just give just a couple more minutes, and I'm going to stop because I am trying really hard to stop this on time. Chuck, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll be brief. This, this is universally applicable in a lot of these categories, certainly to relativism and historicism, and you have to have a debate before the debate or you'll never reach any resolution. So if I were talking to this guy he's defending 20th century morality against Victorian morality, I was like, okay, first, forget, forget comparing the two. How do we decide whether one is desirable or not? What's the standard, first of all? So before you can have that debate, you have to agree on the standard. 
something. That's the first thing you have to have. Yeah. You don't have that, and you don't achieve the standards you can agree on. There's no point talking about it. Yeah. That's true. I, I think we've set that out. That's true for everything. If we don't, whatever position anybody's taking, if you don't try to come to some common ground, something you understand, it's going to be hard to discuss a problem with somebody. You're going to be talking past. One very basic, understandable common ground is, is the child, if, if you have two parents, both working, da 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 is that child... <laughs> Look at where this child is. Look at this yeah. child. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. You can go lots of places. Listen, let me stop. Um, I'm glad for this. We're going to pick up. We've done um, these four. We'll do the rest of these. I hope these are useful. I mean, I, I when I, I mean, just hearing this, I'm. I hope I'm not misconceiving things here. I'm really glad to hear what I'm hearing because I'm assuming. Like somebody said, I'd never heard of eclecticism. I'm, I'm assuming that hearing these things and thinking about what's at issue will help you in a discussion with any, your children, grandchildren, neighbors. Um, so I want to continue. So let's do this next week. We will pick up with scientism. What is scientism? What is pragmatism? What is nihilism? What are those things? Next week, we'll pick up right here. The, the review with um, Fide Arasio is over. We've done it. What I'd like you all to do is um, read the Regensburg Address. Next week, um, we'll get through, try to get through, we will get through these. If there's time left over, we'll start Regensburg. So let's, everybody come prepared to talk about the Regensburg Address. Um, Pope Benedict is picking up with, um, with John Paul. It's faith and reason, but he's got a different concern. What's his concern, and you, you already know you know what John Paul's concerned with. What's Benedict concerned with in the Regensburg Address? He's, he's, his focus is reason, once again. But it, it's a different, very, very different concern. Very, in fact, he's going he's to be attacking two world religions. One of them is going to be ours, Christianity. What's his concern? What's his concern? What, what is he asking us to learn that we have to take seriously, okay? So read Reagan, it's, it's short, it's six, eight pages. Um, I put it online so you should have copies. Um, it's six or eight pages, it's just not long at all. We'll come and finish our discussion on the rest of these um, disorders. And if we get through them, we'll start Regensburg. If we don't, we'll start Regensburg the following week, okay? Wow. Well, we're tackling, I feel like the, the mountain of the modern world has just descended on us. I hope it gets lighter as we go along. Okay, you all have a good week. All of you have a good week, okay? See you next week. Oh. I wanted to put another question to you, but I'll have to wait. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll be ready for Good.